We are back. In this segment of the program, we are lucky to have New Zealand filmmaker Michael Bana. Michael Bana, for the last 12 years, has made documentaries that have aired internationally. You have likely seen his work on the National Geographic Channel, the Discovery Channel, and Animal Planet. His work usually involves some terrific underwater photography, which was most recently manifested on the National Geographic Channel with his latest work, Tuna Cowboys. If you missed its airing in August, it will be returning to the air on the National Geographic Channel on September 30th. Michael Bonna, thanks so much for coming on to Radio Parallax. You're welcome. <laughs> now, uh, we should tell people, we've, I've gone to the web to look it up, your latest documentary is called Tuna Cowboys. That's right. It's appeared on the National Geographic Channel, and I believe it is next scheduled to air on the 30th of, of September. Yes. Well, uh, I saw this documentary because you brought a copy with you, and I, was, uh, I, I think that everyone should take a look at this. It's quite interesting footage you got there. Yeah, it was probably one of one of the toughest assignments I've ever had to do in my life, to be honest. Very difficult assignment. And you've, you've been in a few tough assignments, I think, chasing sharks around the world. I have. I have. Let's start out talking a little bit about this interesting uh, commentary, Tuna Cowboys. Um, you basically followed some people out of Australia searching for southern bluefin tuna. Yeah, it's it's very much a new industry. And when I say new, it's about 12 years old. It, the, basically, it's the whole process of tuna farming, which is a, really is a revolution in terms of the way in which we look at uh, fish stocks around the world. So the, the first interest for me was the fact that it was a very green story. It was looking at fishing from a very different perspective. Right. Um, and then as I found out more about it, it took me about two years to get this off the ground to mm -hmm. win, win these guys over to allow me to go out in the boat. As the story sort of evolved and I started hearing more and more stories about what they were up to, suddenly the, the film started to turn around from a film about the process of going out and tuna farming to a story about a bunch of very mad Australians doing some very crazy things. The reality is that the job the, these guys was uh, that these uh, guys were doing was that was really what the story was about because it is a very very extreme job, and in fact that's a category it fits into in National Geographic dangerous jobs. Well, we're certainly sympathetic to to, to, to the problems of, of fisheries. We're going to have some people come on from the National Resources Defense Council in the weeks to come to talk about overfishing and some of the problems and things that have happened in the past. So this is a very encouraging, uh, I think, sign that people are going to to bring these into fish farms. Tell, tell us how that really works. I, I suppose a lot of the fish farms, they're actually breeding the fish from scratch. In the case of the southern bluefin tuna, what they're doing is they're going out, they're catching juvenile fish before they reach breeding size, they're bringing them back and they're growing them to market size in farms mm -hmm. back uh, very close to the shore in South Australia. So they're, they're not touching the breeding stock, which means the breeding stock's continuing to grow, flourish and breed, obviously. Since the early 90s, the fishing Southern bluefin tuna around the Southern Ocean pretty much died out in the in the early 90s. The fishing industry completely crashed. Really, most of the fishermen were were bankrupt or close to it. Um, and it's only since the farming has big, has started that fish stocks have started to come back. And that's that's a big news story. And, and a lot of this is because the the largest of the fish are the ones that are the most prolific breeders. Absolutely, the bigger the fish, the more it breeds, the better it breeds. If you can leave those fish alone, then you're going to have a profound impact on the number of fish in the future. How do you weed out the smaller fish? Well, they, they, tend, to, they tend to travel very much in, in size groups, so they, they, um, they school together in age groupings. Hmm. You find the fish are smaller towards the coast. The further out to sea you go, the bigger the fish are. 
So they, they go out looking for a specific size of fish, around the 20 kilo or, what is that, about 45 pounds. Mm-hmm. Um, they spot them from the air using a plane. The guys who are up in the air can look down on a school of fish on the surface and pretty much tell how big or how many fish there are and what sort of size they are. And then they'll call in the boats from there. Which uh, you showed very uh, very graphically in the documentary, people flying around and yes. going out with their nets. Very crazy pilot, almost as crazy as the cowboys themselves. Well, tell us a little bit about these cowboys. Your comparison that you thought to do, comparing tuna fishermen to something we're all familiar with in America, the cowboy. Yeah, I, that was very much a deliberate thing to do because one of the problems that we have with making underwater films is that a large percentage of Americans don't have an association with the ocean. So it's a, it's a subject matter that's kind of difficult to understand. So the idea is to try and uh, bring it into perspective, give you an idea that these, these people are very much like your, uh, your Midwest farmer. They're doing exactly the same thing. They're going out, they're rounding up fish, and they're bringing them back to a, to a farm, basically. And uh, so that the idea was to try and make it a little bit more understandable. And uh, I think it worked very well. It rated very well for National Geographic. We're talking today with documentary filmmaker Michael Bana. It must be difficult for you uh, to be wielding this, what, 65-pound camera trying to follow these guys around? It is. It's extremely difficult. The, the environment we're working in a lot of the time, I think we're, we're at sea for eight weeks, out of sight of land for seven and a half weeks. And during that time, we, I think, had five days of calm weather. Now, when you consider that our cameras are so big and so heavy and cumbersome, we have to get off the boat that we were working on, which um, the, the main boat we worked off was 170 feet long. Right. We had to get off in a little dinghy, which was about uh, 16 feet long, uh-huh. get lowered off the side into the ocean, and then we had to go back about a half a mile. As it's weather. pitching furiously up and down. Exactly. Uh-huh. And every day that was the most um, testing part of your day. At times, the seas would get up to about 40 feet. Those seas would, uh, when, when the bow of the boat would lift, it would create a massive hole under the front of the boat, uh-huh. and the water would be literally pouring in from there. You're uh-huh. getting lowered right next to that point. <laughs> oh, my. So you had to have the outboard on the, on the dinghy going, uh-huh. and you had to get away from the bow as fast as possible. If you stalled that dinghy, you'd get sucked under the bow of the boat, and that would be it. So then they, you'd get in the dinghy and you'd power out to where they, I guess they had the net. They were dragging the, the net behind them with these juvenile schools of tuna? Yes, they had two what they call corrals that were off the back of the boat. They were about 150 feet across mm-hmm. and about 90 feet deep. Huge big hanging net. Uh, a big PVC p- uh, plastic pipe ring around the top of it, which was the flotation. And you'd get back to those farms and then you'd have to get from this little dinghy over the side of these, uh, these uh, farms and into the corral in sometimes horrendous seas. When you say a 40-foot sea, what, 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 do you just, what, what does that mean to a, to a, a landlubber? Oh, how would you put it into words? I mean, like I mean, a house is, what, 15 feet high, I guess, maybe? And yeah. so this is, this is, the, the sea is going up and down three times the size of your three house? Three times the size of your house. And often breaking the size of your house on top of it. So what would happen is when you're on the ring, on the side of this ring, you'd often have 15 feet of white water coming pouring over the top of you and you're hanging onto that ring for dear life. Yikes. <laughs> so no wonder these guys are cowboys out there. Yeah. I mean, it made it extremely difficult for us to film in a lot of situations. Some of the worst weather conditions, Yeah. trying to film in, in some of those tight locations was just too difficult. So we we ended up pretty much trying to get whatever we could. We went back 
every day with the divers. There wasn't a day, there was one day that we missed in the eight weeks that we weren't in the water or with the divers at any one stage. Wow. When I say the divers, I'm talking about the cowboys. Right. Because they're basically a dive team. These are the people who go back, they're, they're involved in moving the fish from when they catch them in a big purse seine. Yeah. They basically join the purse seine up to these corrals that they're towing. Yeah. And they have to herd the fish through into the corrals. Yeah. Then once they're into the corrals, they have to maintain and look after those fish. And that means making sure that nothing's going to hurt them, that the corral that they're in is maintained, and that it doesn't start falling to bits in the, in the conditions that they're in. And, and, and your documentary shows, to my amazement, that these schools, even though these, these holes are being torn in the net all the time, the cowboys are busy replacing them. But as they're replacing, the tuna would rather stay with their school inside the net than, than make their escape. Absolutely. What would happen is quite often overnight you'd get uh, half a dozen sharks would eat their way into the pen <laughs> and they would spook the fish. And if they scared well, some yeah. of those fish, they might go out through the holes mm-hmm. that the, the sharks had made. But the tuna don't want to leave that school. So what they would, what would happen is you get there in the morning and there'd be a half a dozen or a dozen fish outside the net, mm-hmm. but they wouldn't leave the perimeter of the net. They'd be swimming around outside the school. Trying to break it back trying in. Trying to get back in. <laughs> That's a bit like sheep. Yeah. Now, uh, these sharks, I guess, are uh, this constant hazard. And you show, you show in the documentary some rather sizable animals that are inside that the that the cowboys have to then deal with. Yeah, yeah. I mean, once once the first fish are into that corral, the, the onslaught of sharks begins. I mean, it's a it's basically, it's their favorite food. It's contained in a small space. Mm-hmm. All of the vibe that the, the fish are giving off is saying, hey, we're trapped. We're in a small enclosed space. Yeah. Come and get us. At times, you would look out through the back of that net and you could see 200 sharks following. 200? And these are like not your little three-foot-long sharks, I take it. No, the, the average size of the shark would have been between six and ten feet. Hmm. And most of these species uh, are the kind that have been known to take an occasional nip out of the human species. They are all known manatees, all hmm. of them. Okay. Well, you've got a long background of dealing with sharks, I understand. Yeah. I mean, for me, the, the sharks was probably the easiest part of the job because I spent 10 years diving with them and working with them. I wasn't as concerned with the sharks. The problem really was the weather and the yeah. environment we had to work in. Yeah. Um, the job they were doing with the sharks was quite spectacular. I mean, this is, this is the other green side of this operation is there's no bycatch. Absolutely no bycatch. So there what, are, what, what, what does that mean? Well, there's normally what would happen if you went out and purse-sained schools of fish yeah. like, like you would normally net fish you would end up with all sorts of other species of fish right. in the net sharks um, dolphins uh, all sorts of other fish that you don't want right. all of those animals normally would be killed in the process of catching your the, the target species uh-huh. you're after and that's called bycatch okay. and a lot of that bycatch has no commercial worth so it's thrown or it's turned into fertilizer the great thing about this is there is zero bycatch. And in the case of this particular operation, the uh, the head diver, Nick Pluka, was very green and he didn't like seeing any of the sharks hurt. So other than, I think we were, there was one shark that died in the process of that filming. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, one shark for basically $11 million worth of fish is pretty good. You got some great underwater footage, some wonderful, wonderful stuff for the, for the viewer. But to get that, you had to take this camera down and basically, it looks like, shove it up to the shark as the guy is working on freeing it, which must have been a little dicey at times. Uh, you, you get very close to the sharks, very close. But I mean, I'm, I'm lucky. I'm not like a diver. These, these guys are working with a little three-inch pocket knife. Uh-huh. I've got three feet of aluminum housing in front of me. Mm-hmm. So I've got the best buffer you could possibly have between you and the animal. 
which is a which is a good advantage for me. Yeah. The problem is at times there were so many sharks in the net, and you get so preoccupied with filming that you're very un- you're pr- completely unaware of what's happening behind you, and the sharks are very aware of that. If you're looking one particular direction, they'll start getting curious and coming up behind you, and quite often you look over your shoulder and a shark could be a couple of feet away. As soon as you look at him, he leaves. Wow. But he'll just keep getting closer and closer and closer until you get bumped. Knowing that you can't see him. Yeah. Interesting. I noticed that when they were free, they would generally tend to scoot off in one direction, which must mean you you don't want to be in the mouth-oriented direction. (laughs) Exactly. And the divers are very careful about the way they cut the animals free. Yeah. There's one particular animal they cut out of there, which is about a 10-foot mako. And... uh, when you when you watch it first time, you think the guy's just sort of hacking away at the net and then pushing the shark out. But if you watch it carefully, you see that the first thing he does is make sure that the nose is facing down. I mean, these animals are capable of accelerating up to 50 miles an hour in a blink of an eye. Mm-hmm. They're incredibly fast sharks. Mm-hmm. If that animal decided to, to go ballistic at that point and it was facing into the net, somebody could get seriously hurt. So they're very careful. They make sure that the shark's facing out before they start cutting the animal away. And then every move they make is to try and protect themselves if the shark tries to turn. They make it look easy, but it, there's a lot more to it than, uh, than meets the eye. We're speaking with Michael Bana. For 12 years, he has made documentary and educational films all over the world, frequently involving sharks. He's talking about his work today for the National Geographic Society. Before the show, we were, you and I were talking a little bit about... Um, the differences in American audiences and when you make a documentary more for the international market. And you have to keep some things in mind, which I thought were pretty interesting. Can you tell us a bit about those? Well, there's almost two types of films you make. There's a film you make for the European audience. And when I say European, I mean pretty much the rest of the world. And there's a film that you make for the American audience. Mm -hmm. The American audience over the last two decades has changed dramatically from the rest of the world. You've had exposure to a lot more channels especially if you're if you've had cable for a long time so what tends to happen is um, I think Americans work uh, long hours perhaps longer hours and a lot of people around the world mm-hmm. when they do come home rather than sitting down and opening up their magazine which would guide them through what they're likely to want to watch they tend to pick up that remote and channel surf <laughs> as a result of that you have a completely different do. way that you have to make television for the market um, we find that the American audience has a shorter attention span right. because of the channel surfing. Right. So you have to deliver more information in a shorter time frame. Right. You need to go to the ad breaks very, very carefully because it's very easy to lose your audience at that ad break. If you don't leave them hanging, right. they'll surf through the ads right. and something else jumps out at them, you've lost them. We'll see whether, whether John can survive his encounter with the deadly octopus right after the commercial break. That's the one. That's the one. <laughs> And if you if you don't do that, you lose them. And so your your films tend to be they have more information in them, yeah. faster turnover of information. They go to the ad breaks harder, so uh-huh. there's there's a greater strength. We try and make our ad breaks at a key point in the film, so that you're going to want to see what's going to happen afterwards. And you also try and build your story so that progressively through the film, the drama, the intensity of the film continues to pick up. It must be really a pain as a, as a filmmaker having to just keep that in mind all the time that, oh my, I can't go for 90 seconds explaining this because I'm going to lose the audience. Well, it's, it's a way of making films. And if you want to be successful in the American market, you have to think seriously about how you do it. How much, what percentage of the world market is, is the American market? It's, it's a big part of the market, a yeah. huge part of the market. The majority of the funding for a lot of the productions that we make comes from America. 
Um, in the case of this film, it's, it was a commission for National Geographic, so uh, National Geographic own it 100%. So the American market was a large part of it. They, they have two divisions in National Geographic. They have National Geographic US and they have National Geographic International. Oh. So we make two versions of the film. We make a 45-minute version, which is the, the version that's screened here. You have about five minutes in the, in the commercial hour here. Mm-hmm. And we make a 47-minute for the international market, which is slightly longer. A little bit fewer commercials overseas. Yeah. So I, I take it you must have gotten sick of eating tuna when you were out on this boat. Well, no. To be no? honest, no. The problem we had was that the cowboys don't eat tuna. You, you'd think with all that beautiful sashimi right, right there in front of you, the it's most expensive fish. fish on the market. Right. The reason it's worth $11 million is because people are paying top dollar for this product. Absolutely. The fishermen wouldn't eat it. <laughs> what would they eat? They, they were steak and potatoes men. Oh, Absolutely. Lord. Three meals a day, Lord. steak and potatoes. Were they, were they eating those meat pies that they're so fond of down there? Yeah, well, the one time we got the chef, or a couple of times the chef cooked us fish, these guys would uh, defrost meat pies. <laughs> Hard to believe. Yeah, and as soon as we started eating raw fish, we started eating sashimi. The um, We'd slice it off in these big inch thick steaks, but it was wasabi, some soy. Sure. They, they just couldn't believe what we were eating the fish raw. They just couldn't, they just turned their nose up at the very concept. Absolutely. It's far from over once you've captured the fish. You have to bring them all back from deep out in the ocean. Absolutely. We're about 250 miles south of Australia at that point once we've caught the fish. Okay. And they can only tow the fish at 0.8 of a knot. That's about 0.8 of a mile an hour. Right. If they tow them any faster, the fish uh, can't school and they start to stress. Okay. So it's very important that they bring back the fish in absolutely perfect condition. So we have this arduous journey where we tow these fish right across the ocean at unbelievably slow speeds i don't know how you how do they not lose all the tuna when the storms come these huge waves are there well these these that's what the cowboys do they're back there patching repairing making sure that they don't lose their fish and Uh every day they go back they spend hours and hours and hours sewing up the holes the sharks have made Uh and that goes on day in day out all the way home eight weeks we got seven weeks out. We finally saw land for the first time. Woke up the next morning. It was gone. You get into a current. It only has to be a knot of current, and you start going backwards again. Oh. So it's it really is a long process. So you're, you're, you're setting up a speed of like one knot or a little less than a knot, and then you're having to sort of weave through currents that might change everything. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Sounds like that must be the toughest part of the journey in some ways. It's certainly, certainly the longest part of the journey. The catching <laughs> the fish is pretty exciting and it's yeah. pretty full on, but then, yeah. then the whole process of coming home, because you've kind of done the job, right. that's, that's when it really starts to get along. And eight weeks at sea is a long time at sea, especially on the boat we're on. You've seen his documentaries on the National Geographic Society, and he's here to talk about that with us today. Michael Bana is our guest. You mentioned in the, in the documentary that, that, that it's possible to lose everything in the last minute as you're getting near the, near the coast and the currents are increasing and being more treacherous. That's exactly right. I mean, it's very easy for those structures, for one of them to fold or for them to have a problem. Um, if they, or, or if the fish panic for whatever reason, you get into a very, very strong current and it forces the fish to the back of the net. If they panic, they've got nowhere to go. They can't get out of that situation and, and you can lose animals and it can be very costly. Once, basically, these people are working on a quota system. So once yeah. they've caught their fish at sea, that's it. If he lost all his fish, he couldn't go back and fish again until this time next year. Jeez. 
And, uh, and, and the documentary shows them having to, like, actually sort of very much analogous to cowboys wrangle some of these, uh, these large fish into the various containers. How, why does that work? This is, this is the grand thing about, uh, about this style of fishing. In yeah. the past, you caught all the fish over a period of a couple of months. The whole market had this glut of fish arrive. The price dropped. And, uh, and they, they didn't make very good money. Now bringing them back to the farms, they bring them back in the farms, they sure. fatten them so every fish is the perfect weight, perfect fat content for the market, and they kill to order. So if the market price starts to drop, they stop killing fish. Sure. So they keep them in the farms for about five months until they're fattened and they're the right size for the market. Oh, that, and, that quickly? Yep, they grow fast. They double their weight in five months. Wow. Yeah, I mean, it's it's one of the most effective, I mean, fish grow very, very fast, or certain species certainly grow very, very fast. So and it makes it incredibly viable. So these fish, I assume, are not winding up in our tuna cans here at home? Not these fish, no. No, these are, these are absolutely the perfect sashimi fish. So it's the Japanese market. Yes. And okay. each fish that goes to market will have its own little report card. When it, when it arrives, they check it for fat content, they check it for buildup of acid in the muscle, and they give it a grade. And then it goes onto the auction floor with that grade. And these fish are all A-grade fish. And that's the whole process of farming. So they're actually checking for like lactic acid like you do in a human being or something like the breakdown product if it's a stressed out? Pretty much. Pretty much. I'll, I'll and in order to, to, to defeat that, when they come to harvest, each one of those fish is hand caught by the cowboys. Uh -huh. So that, the 15,000 fish that we caught in, uh, in uh, this is February, March, uh -huh. they start harvesting in about a month's time. And they will hand catch every single one of those fifteen thousand fish. They'll be hand caught by the divers, and then the and the the, the processing takes place in seconds. So there's hmm. no stress on the fish whatsoever. It's dispatched with all haste. Bang. All haste. Yeah. And catching a thirty-five kilo, which would what's that about eighty pound tuna, is yeah. no easy job. It didn't look too easy. No. The first couple, I tried it a couple of times. I nearly ripped my arms out of my sockets. Unbelievably powerful fish, but there's a technique to it. They, um, if they, if they can get their hand over the nose of the fish, mm -hmm. the fish will stop. Mm -hmm. It feels something in front of it, and it'll stop. And then they roll the fish over. There's um, uh, something that happens with a lot of pelagics, including sharks, called tonic immobility. And mm -hmm. if you flip them over, you kind of disorientate them, so they go into this sort of uh, dazed state, and then they move the fish over to the killing platform. So mm -hmm. that there's there's no chance for the fish to get stressed stressed at all. Well, you, you said that uh, this is actually having a very uh, good effect on the stock of, of the tuna out in the, in the deep sea, and they really the numbers are coming back? It is. There's a couple of other things that the Australians are doing that makes them um, particularly good at what they do. The fish stocks are so huge there now that it would be very easy for them to raise the quota. They haven't done that. If they raise the quota, then the Japanese will raise their quota. The Japanese currently fish in international waters, right? and it's in the international waters that the breeding stock are. So by the Australians not getting greedy about the money and not raising their, uh, their, the number of fish that they're killing, they're effectively making sure that there's going to be fish there for the future. As we see all too rarely, in real effort to, be, to maintain sustainability. Well, we have to. You know, in a lot of places around the world, it's not happening yet, but it's so important that we do. We have to. Well, Michael Bonner, thanks so much for talking about uh, your documentary, Tuna Cowboys, for the National Geographic Society, and I hope that uh, you'll come again and talk about some of your other documentaries. Oh, you're welcome, Doug. I'll be back. Good. I hope soon. Wow, 
That's it for the show. Tune in again next Thursday at 5 o'clock, and uh, hopefully tune in tomorrow, if you're not uh, doing anything, to KXJZ, Capital Public Radio, where two of the public affairs hosts here on um, KDVS, yours truly, and Dr. Andy Jones from Wednesday's program, Dr. Andy's Poetry and Technology, will be hooking up to talk about the English language to the Capital Public Radio listening audience. Uh, this should be fun for all of us. All right, stay tuned for Todd. 